take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis chapter 9. Thank you for that uh, this morning. Encouragement of that. Genesis chapter 9. Back in 2019, there were a lot of people anticipating what is known as the Preakness Stakes. It's the second race in the Triple Crown, and a lot of people, of course, were predicting and doing a lot of other things that I don't recommend as far as the, the race is concerned, but they were interested in to see who would win that race. And of course, you have all these different horses and jockeys that are a part of this, and you figure it's going to be a really good race. And all the prep had gone in, trainers working with the horses, jockeys uh, running with the horses and the like. Well, there is a individual that uh, is a what they call a Hall of Famer uh, as far as the race is concerned, a man by the name of Johnny Velasquez, who has raced a number of winning horses. He was on the back of a horse uh, that had the name of Bod Express. And before the race got started, this horse was not really all that happy to be there. It was kind of uh, in the parade that they have as the horses go by before they put them in the gates. Uh, it was not really happy to be there. And, and uh, so they were trying to get it back in line. And they finally got the horse into the gate. And they started the race immediately. Bot Express didn't like what was going on and immediately threw uh, the Hall of Fame uh, jockey off of his back and took off running. The jockey immediately got off the course so as not to be trampled, but uh, Bot Express uh, decided that he was going to be a part of the race. They tried to bring a horse on during the race that they have these individuals that are there to help out or on horses on the side. And they, they tried to get Bot Express and, and Bot Express just ran around them. In fact, uh, passed horses and crossed the finish line. And they tried to catch Bot Express again and the horse ran another lap around the track. Now, the significance of this is that most of us, you'd think, okay, here you've got a guy who's a Hall of Famer when it comes to a horse and that he ought to be able to keep this in line, but right out of the gate, he stumbles, falls, falls right off his horse. What we have here is a story like that. Because we've gone through the past few weeks and we've gone through the story of Noah and his ark that he built and the escape that God gave him, the rescue uh, and the salvation that was given to him uh, by God. And uh, as you come to this, you're thinking, okay, God has given mankind a new opportunity. And then all of a sudden you have this story. Now, you say, why is this story here? Well, and uh, it's already been quoted in Sunday school, and you've already heard it this morning, that the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture, okay, all of it, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God uh, can be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. That every portion of Scripture is important. It has some purpose. And as you look at the scripture, you go, well, you know, there would be some nice things that would have happened if God had told us certain stories. But as you read through the scripture, there are people who live almost a, a thousand years. We have no stories about them. 
fact, we went through that listing of those individuals that had life, that they lived 900 years and had children upon children. Uh, there's only two people on that long list that lived that long and died that we even have a small story about. Uh, when you think about the lives of some of the great characters in Scripture, you're thinking, well, why didn't uh, God tell us about this and this and this? Because it didn't serve the purpose of what God was trying to get across. And you're thinking, well, God, did he really have to do in this passage, give us what we find here? A rather difficult story. Why is it included in here? Couldn't he have just skipped over this? I mean, here you have a man who is the, and uh, as the Bible describes him, one of the most righteous men in all of Scripture. Back when Ezekiel was looking for individuals uh, that he could say, well, if these individuals were in the town of Jerusalem, Jerusalem wouldn't be destroyed. He said, listen, if we could find Ezekiel, or Ezekiel said, if we could find Noah, and if we could find Job, and if we could find Daniel and put them in the city, it still wouldn't save them. I mean, Ezekiel was trying to find the most righteous individuals he possibly could, uh, and Noah is in that category. But you find here Noah failing. And failing dramatically. But you go, well, why did God include this story? I mean, Noah lived, uh, as you get to the end of this passage, you find out that he lives 950 years. And all we have about his life is the ark and this story, and that's it. Nothing else. Now, I will say this, that you have to understand when it comes to our Bible that context and setting is very important. There's a lot of people who take verses directly out of context and they apply them to situations that God never intended them to be a part of. And so it is important for us to realize that every text that we have is set in a context that is important for us to understand. And you say, well, what's important? Why was this passage added to the scripture? Why was it there? You have to remember what... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, or excuse me, who Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were originally written for. That plays a role in why this passage is here. See, the ones that would have been receiving this, Moses being the author of this, would have been individuals that had been delivered out of Egypt, had wandered for 40 years, and were standing on the boundary uh, of the promised land. A land promised to Abraham, and we'll get to Abraham as we get through the book of Genesis here, that God promised him this land. But they're standing on this land, and uh, on the border of this land, and they're receiving all this information, their history, the background, everything that they've ever done, why they're God's chosen people. And they might be thinking this, why are we going into this land and God has commanded us to wipe out the Canaanites. You know, that seems kind of severe. That seems kind of harsh. It seems kind of, well, you know, that just seems mean-spirited of God. And what this passage of Scripture does for us is give us the beginning of the history of the nation of, well, the nation of the Canaanites and why God eventually, a thousand years later, is taking Israel and saying, I'm going to use you as my instrument of judgment. 
This is not just random stuff on my part in God that I, I'm going to just wipe out certain groups of people. No, there is a reason for this. Understand what the history is behind this. That these Canaanites are someone that has been for a long period of time, ones uh, who have just gone their own way. And so this story is extremely important for them. And you say, well, it's just for the nation of Israel to understand certain things and why they're supposed to do uh, certain things. But understand for us, in our present day context, there are things to be learned for, the, for, for us in this passage. And for us, if we were just to get one single theme out of this, we ought to just simply understand this. That the response to other people's sin can be beneficial or harmful to generations to come. A response, the response that we have to other people's sin can be beneficial or harmful to generations to come. As we see in this passage, and we're going to look at verses 18 to 21 to start off here initially, we need to see this, that righteous people are not perfect and can sin. The scripture tells us in Ecclesiastes that there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. You can find the best of people and you're still going to find that they sin. And as you see in this passage that we start off that you have Noah kind of looking like Adam. Let me read the story of Adam and Eve and they're put in this garden and everything's fantastic and this great start that's there and Adam's put in there as a tiller of the ground and all the animals are responsible to him and, and there's all of this that goes on. As we get into the story of Noah, it's, it's almost sounding like we have a second Adam here. Because Noah comes out, and as you see the story here in verse number 20, he becomes, as our translation puts it, he's a husbandman, literally a man of the ground or a man of the Adama. Remember, uh, you have Adam, he's named that because he came out of the Adama, the ground. Here you've got Noah, and he's a man who works the ground, just like uh, Adam is when he uh, is there. You find all sorts of different things, and, and the idea that Adam's, or Adam's children are to replenish and multiply across the face of the earth, and this is the very command God says to his sons of Noah, that they're to replenish and go across the face of the earth, to multiply across the face of the earth. There's this kind of second opportunity for mankind. Here you have this righteous individual, one who is, a, in our minds, to this point, you're going, he's sinless. But yet you find that he has a sin nature. You go, well, what happens here? For him, as you read the story here, he plants a vineyard. In this whole process, he uh, has this, and what he does is that he's got an opportunity to start something that can be beneficial for society. Problem is, is that almost immediately, and understand this, that it's not saying here that vineyards are bad. Not saying this from the start. What it's saying is just simply this, is that here you have a man who's got an opportunity to start an ideal society, and the problem was that he was found drunk in his tent. 
Vineyards aren't bad. In fact, as you read the scripture, you'll get into uh, the times yet future to us when the Lord comes back and he reigns here for a thousand years on earth. And it talks about the abundance of what the vineyards are bringing forth. But what happened is this, is that Noah made uh, from this vineyard, made himself uh, what we would call strong drink or alcohol. And he was so inebriated that he eventually gets to the point where he has no shame. As you read the story here, it says in verse 21, he drank of the wine and was drunken and he was uncovered within his tent. It just, that's kind of generic, but it basically says he takes off his clothes. He does it. Now, this is a warning for everyone who thinks, okay, it's all right for us to just do whatever we want when it comes to this issue of strong drink and alcohol and wine. You read through the scripture that there's warning about this throughout the scripture, especially for those that are going to do certain things. The priests are warned about this, that they are not to take this. Those that are taking vows are not supposed to do this. Those that are in leadership are warned of the dangers of this, that it can, it can affect the way they make decisions. And what you find is that for Noah, a man who was righteous, the drinking of this alcohol and consuming it to a point uh, where he's drunk causes him to do things he would have never done in normal life. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the passage in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 where it says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And the context is there. You're supposed to allow the Spirit to control you. The problem is, is that when you allow alcohol in, it controls you. You do things that you would never do otherwise. And for, for Noah here, he makes this uh, decision to go ahead and, and drink. And what you find is he becomes drunk. He's naked. And as one has said this, the loss of decency and honor which marks this first biblical story of strong drink is severer still in the second when you read a story later on where it talks about someone who gets drunk and it's lot. I mean, the first two stories dealing with alcohol is this story and the story of Lot who eventually gets drunk and has children through his own children. And so there just seems to be a warning from the start but here's the issue that nakedness is associated with shame. Remember where the first time where people realized shame, it was Adam and Eve in the garden when they ate of the fruit and all of a sudden they realized that they were naked. And they try and cover themselves and they do it very inefficiently. They take fig leaves, whereas God comes along and eventually offers a sacrifice and makes this garment of uh, animal skins to cover them. But here you have a, a, a person that is this way. But when you look out the, throughout the scripture, nakedness is something that was associated with shame. It was publicly demeaning when an individual, you find in 2 Samuel chapter 6, an individual that's this way, uh, they were demeaned for this. And it's incompatible with living in the presence of God. The priests were told to walk certain ways and to be certain ways when they moved around the tabernacle so that they would not bring shame to themselves and be able to work in the presence of God. They were to be covered. And so when you have this uh, happen, uh, you go, that's a tragedy, a very personal tragedy on Noah's part. He gets drunk. He brings shame to himself. He loses all sense of what, what should bring him shame. 
And if it was just that part of the story, you'd just say, okay, we've got a story about a righteous person who sins. Okay, you're going to find the best of people that they sin. But that's not the purpose of the story. Okay, that, that could have been the reason why God put it here. But it's what happens after this is why God put the story in here. Because what you see, second of all, as you go through this passage in verse 22 and 23, is that people's response to other sin displays the attitude of their heart. When people sin, what's your attitude about this? As we see in the story, you find that the first person that is confronted with this issue in verse 22 is Ham. And you note this, that he is described as the father of Canaan. Throughout the story, you're going to find Ham, the father of Canaan. Okay, that's going to play an important role here. But what he does is that he goes inside his father's tent, and one said, well, he invaded the privacy of his father's house, uh, uninvited perhaps and the like, but whatever the case is, is that he comes in and he sees his father's nakedness. Now, some have suggested that there were other things that went on here, but as you read the scripture and you go through, there is nothing in the sense of immorality that takes place here. It's just that he has no sense of shame when he sees someone like this. And in fact, the way that the language is, is that he doesn't kind of turn aside. He's just like, okay, fine. In fact, to him, the problem is, is that this is humorous. It's a joke to him. I mean, he is uh, one who goes in, he sees what goes on, and, and for him, the, he should have very quickly done what God did for Adam, and that was to clothe Adam when Adam and Eve sinned. He should have gone in and found something, but in this case, it sounds like what happens is that he sees his father like this, he laughs at this, he ends up with the garment in his hand and comes back out and tells his brothers about this. He's making a joke of what his dad is like and, and what is going on there. I mean, once put it this way, Ham ridiculed the old man's downfall. Problem is, is that what he doesn't have is any respect for his parents. See, God has always had as part of his structure for human society that mankind, uh, that men and women, honor father and mother. It's not just when Moses suddenly is given the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 that suddenly, oh, we're supposed to honor our father and mother. No, this has been a part of God's structure in society. In the ancient world, insulting one's parents was a serious matter that warranted at times the penalty of death in some cultures. Mosaic law reflected this sentiment. This incident illustrated the breaking of the fifth commandment to honor thy father and thy mother. And you say, what does honor thy father and mother mean? I'm just supposed to obey them when I'm a young child and uh, just pay attention to them then? No, the idea is that for life, there's a respect. You know, they're not perfect. And whose parents have never been perfect either. They're not perfect, but they're worthy of honor and respect. 
due to them. But what Ham's sin is, is that he just ignores the fact that there's something wrong here and he doesn't respect his father. He makes a joke of this to his brothers. He makes light of what's gone on there. He makes, as some have said, a mock of sin. That's what you have going on here. And so what you have is that he comes out and he makes a mock of sin where he should honor his father regardless of what state he's in. He should show some respect. He does not show any respect. In fact, he mocks him. And it's in direct contrast to what you have with the brothers. See, he comes out as you have this story here and you find in verse 23 and 24 that Shem and Japheth took a garment or it's the garment that Ham walked out with. And they laid it on their shoulders, went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. I mean, they come in and they have a sense of honor and respect enough to know this isn't what it should be, but what we're going to do is give the respect our father is deserving of as best as we possibly can. And they go through this whole process. They've got to go through it in order to show the honor and respect, but they do this and they cover their father. I mean, their actions are a complete contrast uh, to the joke that Ham has made of the father. Shem and, ha- excuse me, Shem and Japheth show a sensitivity, a piousness that is the complete antithesis of the joke of Ham. And so for them, there's a shame about sin. And in honoring a father, regardless of the situation, they show respect to him as best as they possibly can in a very difficult and awkward situation. They do this. And so you have two individuals when it comes to other people's sin, one makes a joke about it, the other one, the other ones go in and do what they can to take care of this as best as they possibly can to recognize the fact that this isn't right and try and correct what they can in the situation. They do the best that they possibly can in a situation like this. And that brings us to the third point in verses 24 to 28, that the response to other sins affects generations to come. See, what happens in this story as you read this in verse 24, that Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. We're not told how he figures this out. No, it may have been that he goes and asks around and goes, what happened? And he gets told about this. Or he may have been inebriated at the time, but had some sense in his own brain uh, to know what had happened. And then when he comes to, he deals with the situation. And as you look at this, it is surprising that with everything that Noah did, a man who the New Testament describes uh, as a preacher of righteousness, warning people about the judgment that God's going to have, that the only words that we have of Noah are these ones right here. We have no other words of Noah. And so God's going, here's this very important individual, and what I'm going to do is give you a statement from him that is going to play a role for generations uh, to come as far as what he says. Because what you find in verse 25, there first of all is what we have a curse. And it kind of doesn't make sense to us. Because when we read verse 25, he said, Cursed be Cain 
A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. You're going, wait a second. I just read this previous story. And as I read through this story, I am reading this. And I'm pretty sure that Ham was the one who made a joke of this. If, if in our thinking we were to go through, we would say this, cursed be Ham. Why Canaan? Why the grandson is the one who is put under a curse from God? Now, there have been many that have suggested different things that Canaan may very well have been involved in this uh, joking and whatever else uh, or been a part of this. And that's why he suffered. And you go, well, why didn't Ham get cursed for this if they were both involved in this? It sounds like that maybe perhaps Canaan is getting judged for his father's sins. He said, that's unfair. Why, why would an individual be judged for their father's sin if they haven't committed it? Now, we do understand in general that in a situation that your sins can have an effect on somebody else. You know, a person who does uh, a lot of drugs can destroy their own health and the health of their children, future children. You know, it can affect generations to come. We understand that. But as you read through the scripture and there are statements made that God will judge from generation to generation, it's not that God is capriciously saying, I'm judging individuals because of the sins of their parents. In fact, as you read through the scripture and you get to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5, you find God making a rather incredible statement. In this context, it's talking about people who worship idols. He says this, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. You go, why shouldn't you serve them? Well, here's why. For I, the Lord God, am a jealous God. You go, what is he jealous about? His relationship with people. He doesn't want you worshiping stone. He didn't want people worshiping wood and those type of things because they have no real play on these people's life. No, he wants them to worship him because he really is the living God. And he says this, that I will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Initial reading of that, you'd go, okay, God's judging idolatry for three and four generations for someone who worships an idol. And it's not saying that. What it's saying is, I will continue to judge individuals the next generation if they do this, the next generation if they do this, the next generation, if they do this, if they continue to hate me and go and follow after idols, I'll continue to judge them. When it comes to God declaring what he's like, uh, when Moses is looking for God to show his glory to him, God gives Moses a statement. And he just simply says this about himself. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But then you have this contrasting characteristic of God in our minds. God says this, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. 
See, what God made clear years later to the nation of Israel is that, listen, if you have a person that continues in sin, like their father, they will be judged. And if the next generation does the same thing, God will judge that generation. He'll bring punishment. And what you have in this story, why Canaan is the one getting judged, is because Canaan, when he hears of his father's sin, is probably enjoying a good joke. Ha! Granddad was acting like that? Oh, that's fantastic. That, boy, that's really humorous. And what you have with him, with him making a joke, his son takes up that kind of life where he's kind of just this sensual type of person. And what you have in the next generation of Canaan after them, they're like that. And the next generation, they're like that. And they're even worse. See, this curse that is put upon Canaan that you have, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brethren. This is a statement of what God is saying. Listen, here you have an individual who makes a mock of sin and his children for generation to generation will carry this out to the fullest. Do you realize that a thousand years later, when the nation of Israel is standing on the border of the promised land, from all shapes and understanding of ancient cultures, they were standing on the border of some of the most perverse and wildly immoral people in the history of mankind. They've had generations upon generations of following their grandfather. And they lived like this. And so by the time the nation of Israel gets here and understand that in between this time, Abraham comes here to this land and lives in here, this land for a time. And in what we're going to see in the book of Genesis is that God's going to declare, I'm going to give 430 years for this nation to repent. You know, this land is not yours yet, but it's going to be to your generations to come, the land that they're going to receive. And what's going to happen is this, is I'm going to give 430 years to the people here to have a chance to repent. And you think about that, 430 years, that's as long as the history of the United States, just slightly less than what we've had so far as a country. And he goes, I'm going to give them another 400 years to have that kind of opportunity. And they still haven't changed their ways. In fact, they've gotten worse. This is why when the nation of Israel comes into this land and God says, listen, I'm going to use you to take over this land and that you're not to leave any of these people behind. It was God's way of finally judging these individuals after a thousand years of opportunity to change their ways, to repent, to turn. I mean, this is not just why you have this story here and Noah declaring this is to simply say this is a generational thing that has gone on again and again and again and worse and worse and worse. And I'm finally bringing my judgment. You as the nation of Israel understand this is not just a random thing I'm doing. This is something that has gone on for generations. And I'm finally bringing it to judgment. Now understand this. It's saying that the line of Canaan is cursed. Does that mean all the descendants of Ham are cursed? 
Okay, I have to stop here for a second because there were people for many generations that preached this fact. That anybody of the descendants of Ham, which cover uh, parts of Arabia and most of Africa, were cursed. The answer is that is wrong. That's not what this passage says. It does not say that all the descendants of Ham are cursed. In fact, as you go through the scripture, what you find, even though some of the worst enemies of the nation of Israel are Egypt and Assyria, and the Babylonians, which are descendants of Ham, these individuals that caused the nation of Israel so many problems throughout their history, what you find when it comes to the Lord coming back someday, you find in the book of Isaiah, as you go through there in Isaiah chapter 19 and Isaiah chapter 11, passages like that, you find that God brings in Egypt and Assyria and Babylon to enjoy being a part of his kingdom. Okay, they are not cursed people that they can never uh, come back. No, God just simply said this nation is going to show itself Canaan. It's going to show itself to just get worse and worse and worse. And there's not going to be any change. And there's a judgment upon them eventually that's going to happen. But when it comes to the rest of it, it's not those people. Even though they did cause the difficulty for the nation of Israel, they are going to be part of some of the blessed that are going to be with God forever. They're going to enjoy blessing. And the question then comes up, could any Canaanite be saved? I've got an answer on that. When you read the story of the nation of Israel standing on the border of the promised land, they send in two spies. And they go to a place that most uh, people would not look for two children of Israel. They go to a place, a hotel, that's run by a prostitute by the name of Rahab. And Rahab has heard all the stories about what God did in dividing the Red Sea and defeating the nations on the, the eastern side of the Jordan River. And she says, I want your God to be my God. I believe he's the only God. You protect me because I'll protect you because I believe your God is the one true God. And you go, well, Rahab, what was she? She was a Canaanite. And you want, to, you want to understand what happened with Rahab's line. You follow it out. Rahab was the great-grandmother of David and the great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus Christ. So you have a Canaanite that is a part of the blessed. It's not that this curse was condemning these people to an eternity of judgment from God and that they were under the judgment of God. No, if they turned and repented, God would say, fine, great. I accept the repentance that you have, and I'm willing to allow you to be part of the blessings of God people. That would have happened. But what you find in general, as far as a culture, these people saw in their dad, Ham, making a joke of sin. And because it was a joke, they participated in it, and they just made it worse and worse and worse. To the point when the nation of Israel is reading this, they realize this is a thousand years that this has been going on. And God said, this is what would happen. And so God uses them as judgment. Now, on the other side, you have this curse. You just go, you know, okay, now I kind of understand why God, you know, God's not just randomly taking on the Canaanites and saying, let's wipe them out. No, this is something that had gone on a thousand years in their history. On the other side, what you have is that God blesses Shem and Japheth. Noah uh, makes this statement Verse 26, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. 
Now, you realize that name Shem is just simply a word that means name. And understand when we talk about Jews, though, realize this, Shemites include more than the Jews. But in our culture, you, you have people now that talk about Jews being Semites or Shemites. Okay, that's where it comes from. But what you have here is God says, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Here you have God saying, okay, here's my, my people, okay, the Shemites, I'm going to bless them, I'll be their God. In fact, I'm going to use the name, I'm going to eventually in the book of Exodus tell the nation of Israel, this is my name, I am the Lord. You see it here in all caps, L-O-R-D, but it's the name Jehovah, which just simply means I am. I am the one who's always existed and I am the one who's made this uh, uh, opportunity for you to know me. I want to be your God. This is the name that God wanted his people to call him by, the Lord, Jehovah. And he says, blessed be the Lord God of Shem and Canaan shall be his, what does it say here? His servant. The idea there is that it's a servant of servants, a slave, that Canaan will eventually be defeated by the nation of Israel. Now understand that the nation of Israel didn't completely defeat the Canaanites. In fact, you go through and you read the book of Judges and they're leaving a whole bunch of them around. Eventually what you're going to have to have happen is that you're going to have to have descendants of Japheth. You go, who are descendants of Japheth? the Greeks, the Romans, and others who are eventually going to finish this work of, out, of wiping out the Canaanites. And God says, listen, I'm going, to bless, I'm going to bless those that are descendants of Shem, and I'm going to enlarge Japheth. And understand, probably the largest cultural group across the, the face of the earth are people who are descendants of Japheth. God said, I'm going to enlarge their tents. But what I'm also going to do is this, is that I'm going to have these individuals dwell in the tents of Shem. Somehow they're going to be tented by descendants of Shem. Now, there's many people that have uh, tried to figure out what exactly that means. And there's two solutions for this. Do you understand that for years and years and years, the Jews were God's people? But then you get to the church age and you find out that there's a whole bunch of people that are from all the nations that are suddenly able to be a part and enjoy all of these blessings that God has said. And it's very clearly that they can be a part of this, that perhaps you have a hinting here of the church, that eventually you have individuals, both Jews and Gentiles, you find in Ephesians, that are part of God's blessing and can enjoy this. But you look, how did it get started? It was through the Jews, God working with them. And you finally work up to the fact where God says, okay, this is very clearly a, a salvation that I'm giving and a, an opportunity of blessing for all people to be a part of. It also could mean this, is that it could be referring to the fact that one day yet in the future, the Lord is going to come back and rule here on the earth for a thousand years. You read Revelation 20, that's a time frame, and you read a whole lot of Old Testament passages, and it simply talks about the fact that Jesus will one day come and rule and reign. And you find out that all these nations come in. And you read in these accounts, it's not only the Egyptians and the Assyrians, but people from the far islands, 
from everywhere that are going to come to Jerusalem and see this one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who died to save individuals, but now is King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this blessing is not just merely temporary, but God says, I'll be the God of the Jewish people, but eventually what's going to happen, you're going to have all these nations that are enjoying the blessing of knowing me as God. They're going to have this opportunity. Now you get done with this and you just simply say, okay, what what do I do with a passage of Scripture like this? Well, at least you get some understanding of why God said, okay, I'm going to have to judge the nation of Canaan. Not just random. God said, listen, the family line made a moccasin. They love to be sinful and they continued this and it's gotten to a point where I have to judge. Sort of like what God got to when it got to the time of Noah, that every imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. That's what you've got going on in the Canaanite people. But I do want to, at least for us today, understand this, that for us, the response to the, or for us, the way that we respond to sin is very important. You know, for us, we can make a mock of sin and perhaps go, oh, okay, take it lightly. And there's a lot of things in our world that make sin a joke. A lot of the things that you see in our media and online and whatever just makes a joke of sin. And for us as believers, sometimes we can take this very lightly and just kind of go, oh, okay, it's not something, uh, you know, all that bad. And we laugh at it and whatever else. Guess how that affects future generations? I've learned in having been a youth pastor and uh, also just seeing uh, parents with children and having to deal with that, that kids always tend to take things a step further. Just the way it is. And you have someone who takes light of sin and goes, okay, it's okay, it's kind of humorous and funny. What's the next generation going to do? Oh, that's kind of funny and it's not all that bad. In fact, maybe I can participate in this. Because it is kind of funny and it's you know, humorous and all of this and it's really not all that bad. And you have a generation after that that is in sin that you just go, well, how did we get here? Now understand that each generation and each child's got to make their choice in relationship to who God is and how they're going to respond to him personally. They're going to stand before God someday and it's not going to be, it's my parents' fault or my grandparents' fault. No, they're all going to have to stand before God and go, listen, I made this decision myself. But understand this, that we do bear responsibility for future generations on how we view sin. If we make a joke of it, why are we surprised that the next generation makes a joke of it or is involved in it? We need to be very careful uh, in what we do, what we say, the jokes we make, what we laugh at, because the next generation will take it further unless God does a work in their heart and they respond to him. They're going to take it further. And so for us, it just serves as a warning. Here you've got the most righteous individual who raises these three sons and he makes the mistake of sin. And I'm telling you this, I am sure Noah was repentant of this just by his response and what he was known of him and how the scripture describes him. He wasn't a perfect man, but I would say this, he probably went and 
before God. And my guess is he probably apologized to his sons. But here you have the son who makes light of this and then a grandson who takes it to the fullest. And generations later, you've got a group of people who don't want God are living life in the most immoral way and it just stacked up. And so for us as believers and as individuals, we don't want uh, to be an individual that, well, is making a mock of sin for a further generation to go, oh, it's okay, it's, it's funny, it's humorous. No, we need to be very careful in what we watch in our media, what's on the internet for us, and these type of things, that it may not necessarily be sinful, but it makes a mock of sin, makes a joke of sin. Because there are generations that are watching and observing. The other side of this is what we're about to have here with the Lord's Supper. You say, why and how does this connect with Noah and this story? <clears throat> Had to think about this for a little bit. Did you realize this? <clears throat> Was Noah saved by his own works? When you read the story in Genesis chapter 6, it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He lived in a generation of people who were doing all sorts of stuff, but at least he was attempting to understand that there was a God and have faith in him. And what God said, I'm going to give you grace, give you something that you don't deserve. You know, for us, uh, there's a lot of things that we've done. We've gone astray, and we are individuals that sin. We have turned everyone to our own way. And when we think about our own lives, we have failed time and time again. And we just shake our heads and go, it's incredible that God would have grace to me. Why would he do uh, what he does for me? It was at great cost of his own son. Jesus Christ came into the world to save, as the Apostle Paul said, sinners. Paul said this, of whom I'm chief. And you think about him. He was a religious leader, a righteous man, as best a person in his community he could be. And he just simply saying, I was the chief of sinners. But God came into the world and sent his son and sent his son to save sinners just like me. And when we look at this table this morning, we've got to recognize the fact we're not perfect. That Jesus Christ came and died to save us. And we celebrate this, and as we will uh, say here in a second, is this is a, something that is celebrated by individuals who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is not, the ceremony doesn't save anyone, but it's a, a ceremony uh, for us that we do that just simply magnifies the fact that we recognize, yes, I'm a sinner, but Jesus Christ came into the world to save me. His blood was shed. His body was broken because I'm a sinner. Thank goodness for the grace of God that he saves individuals like us. And you know what? He can take all of our failures. Okay, I'll say this. All of our failures and the grace of God can keep them from being as bad as they possibly could have been. Our failures as individuals and as parents, all of these things, God is, giving, is able to give grace to take up where you failed to do a work in the life of generations to come where we've failed. And you go, that's incredible that God would do that. Yeah, that's amazing grace. 
undeserved for us, but God is able to do that. And so for us, as we consider this, yes, I'm a sinner, I'm saved by grace, but I also serve a God who's full of grace and mercy, who loves displaying a bounty of goodness and grace, and that even when we fail, he can do things with our failures to bring about good, to magnify his grace, to show himself forth. And so as we come to this time here in just a second, uh, just be reminded of this, Noah failed, but he was a person who had the grace of God. So are we. We're people who fail all the time, but by the grace of God, we're a person who can be one who can fellowship with God forever and have his blessing, not because of who we are, but because of God's grace through his son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. Even passages like this, not the easiest of passages to to work through. But may we understand that you're a God that doesn't delight in judgment, that you delight in mercy and grace, that uh, you sent your son to magnify the fact that you're a God who would love to display mercy and grace to all those that would call upon him. So, Lord, as we get ready to go through uh, this celebration but ceremony, memorial that you've told us to do till your son comes back, may we be reminded that, yes, we're sinners saved by grace, but that you're a God that loves to display your grace through your son. We may fail at times, but you can take things uh, that are broken and do things that are beyond imagination for your glory and for the good of mankind and for God. So Lord, we pray today that uh, you would magnify the grace you've given to us, remind us, yes, we're sinners, but yes, uh, you can do something because of what the Son has already done on the cross for us. So may this be a good time of encouragement for us and reminder uh, here in just a second. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.